What if each one of us lived up to our potential and managed our resources so well that we could provide for ourselves, our families, and our communities in a meaningful and substantial way? Join Mindful Money Management, the show dedicated to empowering socially conscious individuals to manage their financial resources for the benefit of themselves, their families, and the greater community. Here's Lynn Wedham, Certified Financial Planner at Asante Wealth Management. It's great to be here spending Wednesday morning with you. I hope you have a coffee in hand as we spend the next hour together and learn from our guest, Tom Deans. Tom travels all over encouraging folks to have conversations about money and death, two of the topics most people like to avoid. We talk about planning your state as a way to create your legacy. Tom will point out a lot of ways that creating a will is an opportunity for that and so much more. Tom Deans is the author of Every Family's Business, 12 Common Sense Questions to Protect Your Wealth, selected by the New York Times as one of the top 10 books business owners should read. With more than half a million copies in circulation, Every Family's Business is the best-selling family business book of all time. His new book, Willing Wisdom, has received critical acclaim and is a bestseller in six countries. His research and thought leadership on the subject of wealth transfers, preparing heirs, and family dynamics has made him an in-demand speaker. Since the release of his first book in 2008, Tom has delivered more than 500 paid speeches in 14 countries. He has also provided advanced training to advisors employed by the world's largest financial institutions, law firms, and accounting firms. His thought-provoking and contrarian approach to business succession planning and family wealth transitions leaves audiences motivated to take action and to work closely with their advisors. Dr. Deans is a frequent guest commentator on the subject of business succession planning and intergenerational wealth transfers. He has appeared on all major national TV and radio news shows and has been featured in the New York Times Entrepreneur Inc. Fortune and the Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Tom. Wow, that's quite a mouthful, uh, Lynn. Thank you. Great to be here. We're very pleased to have you to chat with us today and really looking to understand the different message that, that you bring regarding creating wills. What message can you share with our listeners about thinking of that preparation of the will as an opportunity? Well, I think, you know, Lynn, makes certainly the message in the book a little bit different is this idea that a will is really an opportunity to be something so much more than the the division of wealth or property. It really is, I think, a document that creates the opportunity for families to talk about what's important. You, You talked about legacy in your introduction. I think a will, when it's viewed not as a solo endeavor, but as an opportunity to collaborate with your beneficiaries, to draw up that will, to have conversation, to share ideas and stories, and then write the will and sign it, then I think the will is a completely different document. I think it really is, I think, an opportunity, as you said in your introduction, an opportunity to create legacy for yourself, for your family, and for your community. And that's, that's a thoughtful will, and that's an amazing gift that transcends just money. Okay, and when you talk about legacy, 
you know, the cover of your book says that the book is for anyone serious about leaving a profound and enduring legacy for their family, friends, and community. We often, you know, we're always thinking of the financial contribution, but what is your definition of legacy? Well, I think it's a broad one, uh, Lynn. I, you know, I, we tend to think that you have to be uber wealthy. Um, you have to be extraordinarily rich in order to have an estate plan. You need to be, you need to have lots of assets in order to write a will, uh, and and so that you know, estate planning wills are only, you know, of the preserve of the of the wealthy and the famous. And I have to tell you, what I'm trying to get at is this idea that whether you have modest wealth, and I mean really modest wealth, when you write a will. It is for many people the only document, the only written word that they leave behind. They don't. Not everyone writes books and articles and or even love letters or or has mm-hmm. any kind of inclination to write. And so when they die, they, you know, they leave their they leave the people who matter most in their lives with lots of questions about what they what was important, what was their you know their essence and so what a will can be is more than just a document that says you get the lawnmower you get my watch you get my cash you get the cottage it can be um, a document that says um, these are assets that I want everyone to share in and this is how I want you to share in them and in my will and aside beside my will here's my advanced health care directive and here's how I would like you know, if I become incapacitated, how I'd like you as a family to deal with that scenario. Note that that has nothing to do with money. So I believe that a legacy can be just so much more than the division of assets. It can be leaving clear evidence of what you hope people will do with your assets long after you're gone, what people important to you will do to continue your work. That's a legacy. And when it's left with you know, detail and context and stories, that is a profound gift. And again, that is a profound gift that goes well beyond just who gets what, when, and how. Mm-hmm. I know that there are a lot of stories in my family that I wish I had, you know, written down with the detail given at the time, you know, mm-hmm. because now they're just not so clear in my mind. Well, I think... Um, not only have we lost the art of writing down our stories, our family stories, but we've lost the art of of breaking bread together. It's usually meals shared with family and friends, people who matter most, where we where we share stories. And we, you know, the studies show we're just we're having fewer and fewer meals with our family. And so, as a as a consequence, we've lost the oral tradition. We've lost the the kind of the the old art of storytelling. And and I say in the book, you know. In ancient times, when we didn't have surplus wealth, all we had was what we, you know, kind of hunted and, and killed to eat that day. We sat around fires and we told stories, and it didn't matter whether you were the eldest born or the youngest or a brother or a sister, or even if you were family at all, you heard those stories. And if you were smart, you listened and you took the wisdom that was being shared around the campfire and you did something with that knowledge. And, and over the course of generations and the history of civilization, we, we took that wisdom and we did something and we, and we progressed and we became something more. And notice that had nothing to do with money or taxes. That was all about storytelling. And so part of what Willing Wisdom is trying to do is to rekindle that, that ancient art of storytelling and to give 
readers seven questions that they can use around their own fire, uh, in their own family meetings, not in some formal boardroom with shirt and ties on and you know being this very dark and morose subject, but actually using seven questions around a campfire at the cottage, at the dock, and talking about the most obvious and predictable things in life, and that's aging and then, of course, ultimately dying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you talk about asking questions and having conversations. Why do you think we need to be reminded to do something that on the surface seems so simple? Well, it does on the surface seem simple, particularly after the fact, right? We, we, we know that four U.S. presidents died without a will. Two of them were lawyers. You know, we yeah. think that the smart and the rich and the wealthy have perfectly buttoned down estate plans. They're often the people who who really mess up their plans the most. So, you know, this whole idea of estate planning and wills, it's not just for the preserve of the wealthy and the famous. Everyone struggles with this. Everyone struggles with the subject of talking to family, especially about aging and money and provision of care and who gets what. And we delay and we procrastinate. And there's there's a lot of superstition wrapped up in this subject. If, you know, if I write a will, I'm I'm taunting death. I will expect my death if I write a will. I mean, there's lots of things that are working at the subconscious that are preventing people from from putting these base documents in place that will save actually themselves and their family a lot of heartbreak. So I, I think this is just an awkward subject. We are, for many, many um, Canadians, the first generation to actually die with a surplus. So, you know, there, it's not that long ago where mm. you know, a will was kind of it was kind of a luxury. You didn't really need one because you kind of died with nothing. You, you, if you were lucky, you had saved enough to pay for your own you know, funeral expenses. We right. have a generation right now of Canadians where the average inheritance now is moving from 50000 to $250,000. There are immigrants, first-generation immigrants, who moved to Toronto and by good fortune uh, landed in a city whose property values have just skyrocketed, and, and right. you've got working working folk who landed who landed here in Toronto in 1950, sitting on two million dollar properties. Uh, good fortune, good savings, good money habits are now, um, you know, creating surplus wealth at death. But that generation, as they look into their own history, their own family history, they have no clues. They have no guidance on how they should have these conversations, talk to their family about what they've created, whether it's through hard work or good fortune or both. And that's what I think this book is trying to do, is just give some tools, some practical tools to people so they can start these crucial family conversations and and start them with their advisors in the room. I think advisors can help shape these family conversations. They can keep the lid on some of the emotions that sometimes percolate, and, and they will. This is mm-hmm. a subject, you know, that is the intersection of family relationships and sibling rivalry and emotion and power and control. It's all there, and aging and fear and and who's going to take care of mom and dad. These are all wrapped up and and mixed together as issues. But I and I but I really believe that avoiding them, ignoring them, you know, just it's like doubling down. It just raises the stakes. And of course, when mom and dad uh, die, and then people are grieving. All of this stuff comes to the fore, and then, of course, what happens? Who who really makes the money? Who really benefits from that scenario? It's the lawyers who litigate, and and that's what I'm trying to provide. I'm trying to put the lawyers out of business, quite frankly. <laughs> yes, let's let's have nice nice clean wills where everybody already agrees on what's in them. I guess you know would be the uh, perfect world, wouldn't it? 
I think so, and I say that tongue in cheek. In fact, uh, the oh, 12, for sure. uh, 12 and a half million Canadian adults without a will. If we had 12 million Canadians write their will, uh, you know, there's there's about there's about three to five billion dollars that lawyers could make if they just wrote more wills. So this is right. the, the lawyers will never be out of business, nor nor is that really the objective. But my goodness, there is something wrong in our legal system. I I, I often often say in my speeches. I, I receive annual reminder letters from all sorts of personal service providers, you mm-hmm. know, from you know window cleaners True. to lawn lawn maintenance, saying you know it's it's April, it's time to clean your windows. I have never received a letter from my lawyer saying it's been three years since you've updated your will. We should book an appointment. I don't know what's going on in the legal profession, how we mm-hmm. found ourselves without you know 12 million adults without the most basic and most important legal right. document in our estate plan. How has this happened? And by the mm-hmm. way, that number is 125 million in the U.S. So you know, it's not just that Canada is broken. Every country uh, has intestacy rates. That is, that is, people dying without wills is roughly 50 percent. Wherever I mm-hmm. speak, whether it's Argentina, Brazil, or Japan, there is just a huge cultural ambivalence among people of all sorts of cultures in talking to their family about the most obvious and predictable thing in life. So you talk about you know the, the role of the professional, certainly in in helping to to calm the emotions. But I think that sometimes people don't understand all the issues that are involved as well. You know, so so the professionals need to come in to say, well, you know, you have an issue here in some circumstances because people get in their mind that well, it should be this way. Things aren't always going to turn out the way that that people think they will. It's time for us to go to a break now, Tom, so we'll do that, and uh, we're looking forward to continuing this conversation after the break. Do you want to make a difference? What if you found a way to make a far bigger impact than you ever thought possible? Apply mindful money management and learn how to create a better world by casting a vote for your values every time you spend, invest, and donate. Lynn Wedham is available to speak to you individually or to your group. You can reach Lynn at 519-654-8342 or by email at lynn at mindfulmoneymanagement.ca. We're back, and the title of today's show is A Death Built with Care, and my guest is Tom Deans, author of Willing Wisdom. So, Tom, have you heard stories of of people that that thought things would go a certain way and there was unintended consequences created by not having conversations? Well, lots of it. I mean, you know, one of the common things that I hear are people who say, well, you know, why why would I bother writing a will when the government will just divide my money exactly the same way I would anyway? I want my wife mm-hmm. to get, you know, all my all my money when I die. Mm-hmm. And then when she dies, she can she can then pass the wealth on to our kids. Well, I can tell you right now that when you die without a will, when you die intestate, you know whether you know you're in Ontario or in the U.S., every state or province has their own unique formula for dividing assets, and it's it's wildly different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And I think most people are amazed when they think that. Um, you know, when they when they learn that just telling someone what your intentions does not make a binding will. So without a mm-hmm. written document, without it being properly executed, without it being witnessed, um, and then and then saved in a in a safe, accessible place, 
uh, naming an executor, giving a copy of that will to an executor so that people aren't scrounging through your personal possessions trying to find evidence of a will. Uh, can right. just, you can just see the chaos uh, <laughs> that ensues when people are – and, you know, the bills just keep coming in, you know, cell phone bills, satellite bills. All the, all the bills keep coming in, and the executor is trying to get their arms around this stuff. Uh, trying to get access to accounts to pay for for things, it is you know we we all leave something behind, uh, and some of us leave more chaos than gifts. And I uh, think that one of the great gifts that we can leave family has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with just being organized and thoughtful. And I think people you know will kind of remember you quite frankly in a different way. I mean, I often say to business owners who are who are incredibly controlling. I mean, that's why they're successful because, you know, they do things on their own. They noodle problems on their own. They figure out things on their own. Their whole life narrative has been about, you know, really being the solo entrepreneur. And, and of course, what happens when they get to late in age and they, or they're considering their will, they think, well, I'll just do this myself. And, and they do a holographic mm. will. They write their own will. And, uh, and it's not properly documented. It's not dated. It's not witnessed, or it's witnessed by a beneficiary, which often makes it invalid. And so um, they try to do everything on their own. They don't invo- they don't involve their advisor. They they figure, well, I've, right. I've built wealth on my own. I don't need someone's help to tell me how to transition it intelligently. I'll just do it myself. And of course, what we have is um, uh, just a huge, huge mess left behind, and it delays the disposition of wealth and assets to beneficiaries. There's huge, a huge amount of expense, and everyone has regrets. Right. So what guidance do you have for families that may find the prospect of having these conversations, you know, just a daunting task, just something that they just can't picture their families doing? There's an old saying in business, you can't make money. You cannot create wealth without taking risk. And a family mm-hmm. is no different. Without taking risks, there's no reward. And I don't mean reward when you're dying and you leave a family that's well-organized and functions well without you. I mean in, in today's terms, if we don't take risks and approach this subject and address this subject, because it is risky. It is risky sitting, having a family meeting with your advisor as president and sitting your children down saying, you know what, your mother and I have, you know, accumulated this kind of uh, these are our assets uh, when we die here's what we have in mind but what do you think I mean what would you do with an inheritance which is by the way one of the seven questions just asking people what would you do and then listening and hearing it's not about the people with the money necessarily telling people how it's going to be it's actually people who are considering their well a will listening and being informed by their beneficiaries about what they would do. It's a, it's a fascinating subject. It is potentially risky, and that's why I suggest having advisors present. And I think mm-hmm. most people most people will be actually quite amazed at at the degree to which people are relieved that someone is starting this conversation because it is just below the surface. It's on everyone's mind. Um, mm-hmm. Watching parents age, wondering who's going to step up and drive their parents around to their to their doctor's appointments. Who's going to Who's going to, one child usually ends up doing more of the heavy lifting. How is that going to happen? How is that going to look? Is everyone going to just receive the same amount of money after death when, when one person has been doing all the heavy lifting? It gets mm-hmm. at these issues. It gets at all these. These are very real-life practical issues that are alive and well in most families. And advisors right. who are at the table can often share 
stories about other clients who have tackled these issues and how they've tackled these issues. And the advisor kind of takes on that role of a trusted advisor and brings solutions, again, that have nothing to do with spreadsheets and return on invested capital, but really relational solutions to problems that confound you know, the best families. Mm-hmm. I think that's very true. I think an advisor can say, you know, this is what I've seen work with different families. Sometimes it's, you know, if one family member, you know, perhaps has to defer some of the time that they could be spending at their work or something too. Like sometimes it's fair to have some financial compensation on the way through for some family members too. So, Absolutely. yeah, so you're you're talking a lot about a lot more than just just writing the will then in that case, right? You're talking about that family care issue as well. Yes. Yes, very and, much so. And I, I think if there is one idea in willing wisdom that really stretches the imagination or that some people may view as mildly controversial or contrarian is the idea that a will isn't for the for the beneficiaries. I mean, that's why a lot of people don't write write a will. They say, Well, it has nothing to do with me. I mean it's really about other people getting my stuff. I'll so, be gone. Know, I'll get, yeah. I'll get to I'll get to that next year. And here, right. here's what I think is absolutely hilarious about that concept. I think it's just utterly wrong. I think the person who writes a will and then absolutely brings transparency through long, consistent conversations with beneficiaries about who will get what, when, and how, all of a sudden the family actually starts to talk and communicate about issues like long-term care. Who is going to provide the care? Is there enough money to provide the care? Is there proper insurance in place to provide long-term care? Who mm-hmm. practically provide that care? All of, so who's the beneficiary of that? So right. how does it go down in, in most families? Secrecy. I have a will. You know yep. what? I'll keep, I'll keep my will secret. Well, secret from who? I'll keep it secret from my beneficiaries. Who are my beneficiaries? The people that I love and trust the most. It's not enough to share my giving decisions with. So how does that translate? In, how does a lack of trust translate into the quality of care-laden life? It's very counterintuitive. Most people will think, if I tell my children that I've got an extra $4 million in the bank, uh, that is not going to add to the quality of care that I receive. It may expedite my death. I mean, it's, <laughs> but that is, it's full of fear and a lack of trust. And I think right. that does show up. I think that does show up in the quality of care and the kinds of families that we leave behind. I think most kids, you know, they want to know what the situation is, not because they want the money now. They want to know what their parents want. I have to tell you, mm-hmm. the vast majority of children are grateful for the support that they've received from their parents, whether it's education or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they want to honor that gratitude, and they want to provide the care, but they just need help. They need some guidance. They need some clarity, and that comes from conversations that I think are convened by advisors, the best advisors. Right, because some parents really don't want to be a burden, you know, so if that's clear to the children that it's okay. I think that sometimes, even if it's a spouse or or it's children, that decision to move someone into a nursing home or, you know, somewhere because they need more care than they can get at home, sometimes there's a lot of guilt in making that decision. And I think yeah. that if if it was made clear that, you know what, that's okay, I think people would would go through some of these transitions with less guilt and less stress. Less guilt and less stress, no question. And that also applies equally to 
you know, advanced healthcare directives and resuscitate or do not resuscitate. Here, here again, we have an example where these advanced healthcare directives, they're not in the will, but they often get executed and written and considered when you do a will. And so who's the beneficiary when you're very clear to your children and you use very specific language? You know, in our case, in our family, and in my own particular case, when my family hear the words irreversible brain damage or vegetative state, they know clearly what my intent is. I do not want to be resuscitated. I am going to be the beneficiary of my planning, not my family. I am going to relieve them of the burden of having to stand in some hospital hallway and debate whether or not right. they should plug or unplug. I mean, that's a gift yeah. to my family. That has nothing to do with spreadsheets and taxes and the cottage or money. That's right. That's right. Um, yes, I, and I, again, that's another really great example of where someone that has to make a decision can end up having a lot of guilt. But if it's been thought through ahead of time, you get to that transition, you already know what you're going to do, that is a gift for sure. Yeah, very much so. And or, of course, the corollary is it's a huge burden. Did I move too slow? Did they suffer too long? Did I move right. too fast? Did I deny mm-hmm. them of, you know, and all of that ambiguity, that ambivalence that haunts people for the rest of their lives. And it is so unfair. It is such It is such a burden. And, you know, a will takes about an hour to write with a good lawyer and, you know, roughly 350 to $500 maximum for a high-quality will. I'll tell you, it is the biggest bargain. It is the greatest gift you can give your family is the gift of good planning. Right, right. So one of the key things we've said so far is that, that we're having these conversations so that we're able to do what the parents want. And then another thing that I think, too, sometimes, you know, when you're talking about that care, sometimes children don't know that there's money there for care. So, again, it can become a stressful situation if they're wondering if there is money for care because they don't know what their parents' assets are. That's that's absolutely correct. Yeah. And, so who, and, and who pays the price? The, the the person who could benefit, the person who who could be writing their will, who has assets, who, but who hasn't established a culture of communication and transparency around the subject of family finances. They're the one that actually pay the pay the penalty for that lack of transparency, not not the children. Right. And so, absolutely, children. Um, I, I think everyone, and this is this is issue uh, that is affecting just tens of thousands of families right now only because we're an aging demographic and and in many cases the children that are having to step up and provide that care to their parents because they started families later in life they've got younger children they're kind of the sandwich they're kind of the luncheon meat in this kind of intergenerational sandwich they're getting pulled both ways uh, right. and it's an incredibly stressful situation for for a lot of families in their 40s and 50s mhm mhm so One of the questions that you suggest families discuss is, you know, how did you make your money? And I may not have that worded just right, but again, this is is the role of the story. So can you talk a little bit more about the role that these stories have in having the conversations and, and clarifying values? Yeah, so the question you've alluded to is question number two, and and this is a question that asks everyone in the room in a family meeting to talk about how their parents created wealth. And so it's 
fascinating. Uh, you know, as I often advisors will will hire me and I'll sit in and just kind of listen to the families as they as they use the questions to to frame these these meetings and conversations and the stories that you hear when you hear. You know, and when and we use these questions in our own family. When I hear my father talk about how his father created wealth, how he was a saver, how he deferred consumption in order to plan for his retirement, when I hear those stories, they get embedded in our own family lore. And when I hear about my grandfather and what he did and the risks he took as a business owner and how his factory burned down and how he rebuilt it, it what it does it. You know, when I inherited some wealth from my grandparents, a modest amount relative to the portion that my parents received, it was very interesting to to be connected to that wealth in a very profound way because of the stories, to be connected to the money in the way, cause, because we know how it was created and it was difficult. It was hard. It's never been easy to accumulate wealth in our family. And so there's a gratitude. And that's what this question elicits through the storytelling becomes this kind of long historical context that connects the generations together and connects them to the wealth. And I think really creates a generation of inheritors that have a respect for inherited wealth. Mm -hmm. And and it's very funny. Notionally, in my mind, I have two pots of wealth, uh, money that I've earned through my own hard work and ingenuity and, and wealth that I've inherited. And I treat those pots very differently. I am loath to consume my inherited wealth. I, that's the money I reserve more for philanthropy. But the wealth that I earn is I have no problem spending. <laughs> my mm. wife will tell you that. <laughs> it is very interesting that this context and connected and knowing how it was created, how that makes you use it in different ways. And I guess that is out of respect for the way that it was created. I think so. Very much so. Okay. I think we're going to take this opportunity to have another break right now, Tom, and we'll get right back to this after the break. Looking forward to it. In society, plant giving seems to be presented as something you do when you're extremely wealthy or planning your estate. Mindful Money Management focuses on planning your contribution at every step around the issues important to you. Learn how to expand the goodness around you and create a better world. Tune in to Mindful Money Management regularly. Feel free to contact Lynn Wedham of Asante Estate and Insurance Services with your planned giving questions. You can contact Lynn at lynn at mindfulmoneymanagement.ca. Welcome back. Uh, Today we're discussing the opportunities that my guest, Tom Deans, says can be created when we prepare a will. So, Tom, you talk a lot about family meetings. Who should be invited to these meetings? I think the best family meetings, certainly that I've attended, have the advisor or advisors present. And I would start with nuclear families. So, I, you know, parents and children. And as the confidence and I think track record is built, establishing a culture around the discussion of aging and money, then I think absolutely rolling spouses in and expanding then upwards and backwards through the generations, so children and grandparents, to the extent that you have everyone who you intend to leave wealth to are in those family meetings and are prepared for it and connected to it. So that would be the ultimate goal, as big a family meeting as you can imagine, 
and stripping away all the secrecy. And I think that that is that is the kind of the penultimate family that is not waiting for a phone call from a lawyer that says, okay, we're going to have the reading of the will, and it's this big, giant secret. It's kind of well anticipated. Okay, and so one little key that I heard you say there was that they're prepared to accept the wealth. That, Absolutely. That these, these meetings are helping the family to be prepared, not not just for the death, but for the period of time after that when they when they may need some skills, actually. You know, Lynn, it's very interesting. Every day in North America, roughly 7,000 people die. Yesterday, today, tomorrow. In Canada, that's roughly 700. And it's interesting, in both countries, Canada and the United States, t- roughly 10%. Um, so in Canada, 70 people, and in the U.S., 700 people die under the age of 50. We tend to think that wills are just for old people. They're, they're really for everyone. And, and in the absence of a will, if you have children under the age of 18, the state has a formula for dividing your assets. When your child turns 18, they will get all of their entitlement. So in families with significant wealth, you know, what, is, what does an 18-year-old look like with $6 million in their genes? You mm. know, in the absence of will, that's mm-hmm. what you're going to get. Right. So, and even if it's a more modest amount, what these family meetings are doing are, are preparing people and connecting beneficiaries, whether they're young or old, to the wealth. We often think that people who inherit, you know, it's like a, it's like winning the lottery. It's 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 an awesome moment. There are many many people today and tomorrow who will find out that they are the beneficiaries of significant wealth, and it will be a huge burden. It will not be a fantastic day. It will be a day that changes their lives, and not in a positive way. They will be burdened. They will be confused by the wealth. They won't know what to do with it. They aren't connected to the money. They are guilted by it. The list of adjectives goes on and on. I mean, we just have this singular idea that an inheritance is like winning the lottery and it's just, you know, awesome. I have to tell you, equally as well, there are many children who actually have more money than their parents. So when they inherit, they actually don't need the money. What they were, what they would far more value is some clue as to what kind of charities they would have liked them to support. So the mm-hmm. children weren't involved in the, in the parents' philanthropic efforts. Again, there's a disconnect, and, and many, many inheritors would love to honor their parents or whomever has left them inheritance by supporting their charities, and they just don't, they don't know. They, there isn't that history. There isn't family approach to philanthropy. So the great right. families, the great dynastic families, not only talk about who gets what, when, and how, but they also talk about you know, supporting a community, supporting their charities of choice. Why? And, uh, and those are magnificent family meetings, especially when children are young and they can see the role that, that the family has taken over a long period of time in supporting, supporting community. Right. So, you know, one point there was that immature and or inexperienced person that that may receive the money. And you know, we all we all know that certainly cash in some people's hands can lead to behavior that they might not otherwise have have gotten into as well. So, again, the cash without without the will and without the proper approach to that can be very devastating for for some people. Yeah, I think really what we've been talking about is the preparation of heirs, and that's what the family meeting is, especially with advisors present. I mean, when an advisor can take a client aside and say, look, you know, at the pace that you're heading, you're going to die with surplus wealth. Even with an expensive, long-aging, you know, retirement, a long retirement, uh, you've got surplus wealth. 
What about a living gift? What about opening up a small investment account today for your two kids? Let's put in $10,000, $5,000, $500, million. The amount is irrelevant. But let's open up that investment account now. Let me work with your children and get them get them used to the idea of not consuming. Let's teach them about the power of compounding interest. Let's teach them about right. the power of investing consistently over time. Let me work. Let me help you help your children establish a healthy relationship to wealth. That doesn't happen by accident. That comes from a family meeting where wealth is viewed as an opportunity, not as a burden, not as a liability. And it's not shrouded in secrecy. It's it's dealt with. If there's concerns about what an inheritance is going to do today, then address it. It's going to be there when you die. Why not address it? Why not give the ultimate gift? And that's education and, and preparation of heirs. Yes, that's wonderful. It, it's not easy. <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful goal. It's not an easy thing to to create. But but certainly with no with no focus on that, then um, we're not going to get to that point. Now, who should initiate these meetings, Tom? Well, I think it's the person considering their will. I think that's reasonable, mm-hmm. right? If, you know, if I was going to consider my will, I would I would hold a family meeting with my children, and uh, and I have and I've and I have for many many years. And I'll have to tell you, when our kids turned 18, they received wills. They were, they're adults. They were expecting cars. They got wills. I've got to tell you. Lynn, <laughs> but uh, but they, you know, at 18, it was kind of a seminal moment. They're, you know, you're not kids. You're adults. You know, life is about other people more than just yourself. That's part of becoming an adult. And with that comes a responsibility to, to make decisions that affect other people. And, and that's what a will does. It's a document that speaks when we can't. And anticipating that and planning for that is, is, I think, an appropriate gift for someone who turns 18. A little bit of an anticlimax, though, <laughs> compared to the car. <laughs> well, you can give a car if you can afford it. You can give that as well. But uh, it's, it is a rite of passage, and it is, there is something very profound when children all of a sudden go to a lawyer, and, and I'm not in the meeting. I, the, our kids went into that office. We took them there, but mm-hmm. they went into that meeting. It is their will. It is their document. It is their decisions. And I, I think it was a kind of a moment. It is a rite of passage when you, when you sit down and you take stock and say, when I'm not here and I won't be one day, this is how I'd like things to unfold. That's a, it's a kind of an interesting moment. Mm-hmm. A, a real teaching moment, Tom. Very much so, and also a sense of relief, whether you're 18 or 81. When people get this stuff under control, there is an immediate sense of accomplishment and satisfaction and relief. Nothing is more depressing than knowing you haven't got your arms around this stuff. It, it's just, it just eats mm-hmm. away at people, and it does bother them, and it is disturbing, and, they're not, and they don't like that state of mind they're in when they know that they're going to leave chaos behind and so because it is tricky and for some more difficult when you push through the difficulty whether it's in business or in any endeavor life endeavor when you push through the adversity and you accomplish it even if it's not perfect there is a sense that you've accomplished something and i and i say in the book what we leave is is as important as what we leave how we leave our wealth and the relationships the way we re- we leave our relationships is as important as what we leave. And I think that's the big takeaway from Williamson. It's not whether you've got a million dollars or a thousand dollars to leave. It's how 
we leave it. And, and how we leave relationships, whether they work well without us. And that's really my accomplishment. I want my money to bring my children together, not to divide our family. And mm-hmm. the only way that I'm going to accomplish that is, is if I connect our children to our wealth and to our stories and to each other so that when I'm gone, they are empowered by it, not burdened by it, but they're free to pursue what is real and authentic to them and hopefully... I think when they share what that is, I think that's going to enrich my last chapter of my life as I die. I will, I think, hopefully, my last thought is they're in great shape, and the rest is up to them, and, and we're well prepared as a family to continue. Well, I guess I guess that's sometimes it's the parents wondering what the, what shape their children are in, too. They don't know. They don't yeah. know. In fact, what happens yeah. is we, we have met many parents, they look at their kids and they see jobs and cars and houses and trips to Cuba, lots of vacations, and they think, well, you know what, our kids don't need the money, so I'm just gonna, we're going to leave all the money to the grandkids. Because there's no family meetings and, and transparency around finances, the kids could have all sorts of debt around mm-hmm. those assets, and so the grandkids inherit and end up with more money than the kids, it really undermines parent-child relationships between Gen 2 and Gen 3 in really right. disturbing ways. And in many cases, that would be the last thing that the grandparents would want to do, knowing that their money is going to destroy the parent-child relationship. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, certainly an unintended consequence. Very much so. Yeah, and again, because they didn't have the conversations, that's very interesting. Can I ask you to speak about values and charitable giving and the relationship between those two subjects? Yeah, well, I think we've always had a values-based approach to charitable giving, and I see that increasingly in the family meetings that that I uh, that I attend as a resource. And it's very interesting. Uh, one family in particular, they have a uh, kind of a family bank mentality, so they have some family money set aside. And in their family meetings, everyone in attendance pitches, kind of like the Dragon's Den or Shark Tank. They kind of pitch their favorite charity. And then the group decides which of the the charitable causes they would support. Is it ever interesting to see how invested, uh, knowledgeable, passionate the next generation is about taking family money and purposing it uh, in support of a, a charitable cause? And that... That is values-based planning. You can't pitch something and be passionate without without exemplifying a particular set of values and beliefs. And, yeah. uh, and to see that become enshrined in family culture through discussion and relationship building is is magical. Yes, that's that's a very cool idea. A lot of lot of great ideas that you're leaving. So, what can you say about the possibility of messages that are left unsaid or untold? I think secrets and surprises late in life and certainly after death when they're revealed, and they always are, they just are, <laughs> when paperwork emerges, when you know personal effects are revealed, but especially late in life, secrets around money especially seldom add to the family fabric and certainly does not add to the quality of care that people receive late in life. And so I, I would just come right back to that idea that, you know, a will, it's not about other people. It's actually about you. You will be the beneficiary of a thoughtful, willing process. We all will be if we just have the courage to tackle this and to leave family 
with a healthy relationship to, to whatever we leave. And if we can enshrine, and we haven't talked about fairness and equality, but when we can enshrine notions of equality in our wills, it's amazing how families repair themselves when they've been making assumptions about who's going to get what, you know, the favorite child getting the cottage and someone getting special consideration or special loans or gifts that are forgiven. And and money divides families in such crazy ways. And, and it's so preventable. When yeah, I can tell you in my own family, when we give a gift to one child uh, for a particular need or uh, reason, we give it to all of them at the same time, the exact mm-hmm. moment. And if we can't afford the gift for everyone, then the gift that we're contemplating for one is too much. This idea of estate mm. equalization, that if we give $10,000 to Mary, and then if I die tomorrow, then we'll give $10,000 to Billy, $10,000 more to Billy in my will. Well, listen, time is money, and very few people will, will actually do the calculation Someone will feel jilted and hard done by, whether it's Mary or Billy. Someone is going to, is going to feel like that gift was not fair. Mm-hmm. And there we have an example where a family with surplus wealth, actually money is going to be a wedge that divides the family, and it is completely avoidable. It is completely avoidable, and that's really what's, what's kind of presented as a message and a framework in Willing Wisdom. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we'll have some people that will be getting some of these conversations underway and and approaching these subjects that will help them to be a lot more successful than they might otherwise be without having sharing these stories. Is there one final thought you'd like to leave with our listeners today, Tom? Well, it would be a comment about the book. You know, there are just, uh, with 125 million Americans, adults without a will, and 12 million Canadian adults without a will, I, I don't think what the world needed was another technical, boring book on you know wills and estate planning. And so I set out to write something very different. It is a very accessible, funny book. It's actually a story about three people who meet in a restaurant in, um, in Las Vegas, and one's mm-hmm. an estate planning attorney, another one's a psychotherapist, another one's a professional speaker, and they all talk and bring different perspectives on the subject of writing wills, it is hilarious. It's funny. It moves along. But, but it also gives, uh, at the very kind of, kind of end of the book, um, one of the characters reveals seven questions that they've used in their family to start these conversations about money and aging and dying. And, and it's just an easy, fun, accessible book that makes this whole kind of morose subject fun and mm-hmm. kind of putting the fun back in funeral. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it does so in a, in a way that I think brings families together and, and views wealth as an opportunity, not as a liability. Yeah, there's some very beautiful things that could be created from having these conversations. And uh, I think getting it started is the big deal. And certainly the book can give people the motivation, I think, to, to start these conversations. So we're so thrilled to have had you with us today, Tom. Such a great a great message that you've brought us today. Lots for people to think about. So thanks so much for joining us. It was my pleasure, Lynn. Anytime. That's wonderful. Thanks. Let me know if you'd like help conducting your first family meeting. If you'd like to discuss some of the things that Tom was suggesting today. Remember, we welcome your questions and your comments. So this is Lynn Wedham. Until next time, take the right steps to support yourself, your family, and your community. Bye for now. Thank you for choosing to listen to Mindful Money Management. We hope you'll join us next time.
To listen to more shows like this one, please go to soundcloud.com and search Mindful Money Management. We appreciate your follows, likes, and shares. Until next time, remember to celebrate your wealth by doing something for yourself, your family, and your community.